So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we will be looking at verses 1 through 11, and I'll read those right now. So Paul writes, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning the things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother in that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That last section, of course, is a very oft-considered passage, and we'll finally actually be seeing it in its context. Not that it's taken out of context so much, but it's interesting to see what is added to that passage when you consider it in, in the context of 1 through 11. But anyway, last time we did look at chapter 5, so again, moving our way through the report that Chloe's household sent to Paul. Uh, he had finished the big section on divisions. He considered sexual immorality within the church. And now he is addressing another matter. This time, lawsuits between believers, where believers were uh, bringing each other to court and bringing their small matters before the court. But again, last week, Paul addressed this idea of sexual immorality in the church. And the problem was there was a man in the church who was having sexual relations with presumably and most likely his stepmother, his father's wife, a clear violation of the Old Testament prohibition found in Leviticus 18.8. Not that they would know that. I mean, the Corinthian church would not have known the Old Testament law except insofar as Paul told them about it. But also it was something that was not even being done well, let me put it this way. It was not something that was looked favorably upon. Whether it was being done is another thing. But it was not looked favorably upon uh, by the Corinthian society. It was something that even they found shameful. Something that they would not even speak about. But worse than the sin, of course, that was going on was the boasting that was going on about that sin. And I think that might have angered Paul even more than the sin itself. The fact that the church was doing nothing about it. And worse than doing nothing about it, they were acting arrogantly. They were puffed up about it. And we looked at some of the various explanations uh, about that. Um, again, I think I favor the one 
where just the fact that these are um, you know, people in Greece, that they would be sort of influenced by the philosophy of that age, which looked at, had a very strict dichotomy or two-way looking at the world, which you know, matter or flesh was unworthy, was evil, everything attained to the spiritual, so you wanted to leave the body, you didn't, you know, you, you didn't respect the body, so anything done with the body was not really looked very seriously upon. But Paul, in no uncertain terms, rebukes them and exhorts them to remove the fornicator, remove the sinful man from their midst. Because under the surface of all this was, in a sense, a breakdown in church discipline. The church was not doing its job. The church was not doing its job in disciplining, sinning, unrepentant sinners. They were not doing their job in keeping the body of Christ pure from such sins. So Paul um, addresses this as well. It was a, a faulty, if you will, ecclesiology. It's a fancy word that just means study of the church, in particular in regards to discipline. So he urges them to take ecclesiastical action, take action in the church from, you know, through the government of the church and remove the sinning brother from their midst. In a word, it was an excommunication. Now, as we go into the passage here this morning in chapter 6, again addresses another issue from Chloe's household. Uh, this time, the brothers within the church, they were having these disputes, and they were bringing these disputes before civil authorities. Again, another symptom of a faulty idea of the church, or a faulty ecclesiology. Now what we're going to see here in this passage in chapter 6, the first 11 verses, is a dispute between two members of the church that was brought before a civil court. And Paul is going to scold the church here, yet again because they are taking a matter that should be internal to the church, and they're in a way sort of like airing the dirty laundry. They were bringing it outside of the church and bringing it to a court. And the gist of Paul's argument is that the church and the church alone ought to settle disputes between members in the church. We saw this a little bit last week when we looked at how there's an authority structure in the church that deals with matters in the church. There's an authority structure in society that deals with matters in society. The civil government is given the power of the sword to execute justice and to ensure that evil is punished and good is rewarded. But within the church... There's also a, a, a hierarchy, or not hierarchy, but there's also a, an authority structure in the church in which God calls within the church uh, gifted men to serve as elders and deacons in the church to govern the spiritual and material affairs of the church. And anything that revolves around matters within the church between believers ought to be settled within the church, unless, of course, it's a, a civil matter like you know a, a murder or or something like that. But as we're going to see here, what's going on is a small thing. It's a, it's a trivial thing. It's not, it doesn't even raise to the level of a civil case, so to speak. Or a criminal case, I should say. Not, not civil, a criminal case. But uh, if you look at your outline, um, I can't take credit for those point titles. I was struggling trying to figure out how to title the points, so I stole them. <laughs> I stole them from John MacArthur. They're out of his commentary on this. I looked at that. It's like, those are good points. I'm going to steal them. So I did give credit in my notes here. I didn't put credit on the outline. 
but I'm giving you, I'm telling you, so I, I stole them. Are, are you okay with that, that I, that I didn't come up with the points on my own? I, I don't see anybody rushing to take me to court. So, <laughs> so much like he does in chapter 5, Paul, with very little, if any, transition, just kind of plows ahead in chapter 6 to the next issue to address as we see in verse 1. Dare any of you, having a matter against a brother, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. So right here he rebukes the the Corinthian believers here for running to the civil law courts to settle matters that are among believers within the church. And that word there, dare, uh, translates a Greek word which speaks of being bold or courageous or daring. And in this case, it's not a compliment. In the way Paul said, writes it here, you can almost say it's like, how dare you do this? <laughs> how dare you be bold enough to take a matter that's within the church and bring it to a civil law court? What's wrong with you? Now, another interesting word there uh, is the word matter that you see there. Having a matter. The Greek word there is pragma, which other translations, if you have an ESV, says grievance or dispute or a case. Now, it's clear from the context of the passage that Paul is not talking about a serious criminal matter, but as we see in verse 2, the smallest matters, right? The smallest matters. And we see later on where he, see, you know, he says in verses, uh, verse 7, um, you know, why do you not accept wrong? Why do you uh, not let yourselves be cheated? The small matter might have been just a small grievance you know, maybe somebody owed somebody some money and never paid them back. You know, maybe they felt a little cheated by that. You know, so it's a small matter. Now, Paul is not forbidding going to court at all. What he's concerned about is bringing trivial matters within the church before secular courts. He's concerned about, as I said earlier, airing the dirty laundry before the unrighteous. Because Roman law courts, not much unlike our own law courts, were corrupt. Um, who, you know, they received bribes. They showed favoritism. There was, in fact, a system of set up in, in Roman law that if you were a person of high stature, people of lower stature couldn't even bring you to court. They would not even accept that case. You had to be equal or higher stature in order to bring someone to, to court. And then the judges would often favor the one who had the higher stature, whether they were right or whether they were wrong. So there was favoritism, there were bribes, there were all kinds of, all kinds of corruption uh, within the Roman law system. Now, I wouldn't go so far as to say that our courts here are as bad. I mean, there is corruption, to be sure. You hear oftentimes about cases of a of corrupt judge taking bribes or a prosecutor who hides evidence because he, wants, he or she wants to pad his or her you know, um, conviction rate or whatever. Um, it's not unheard of, in, even in our system, to hear of a corrupt judge or lawyer. Now, the trivial matters here between believers and the church, as Paul is going to say here, should be settled in the church. And again, it goes back to this idea of church discipline. The, the, the structure, the authority structure within the Corinthian church had completely broken down. They were not uh, addressing sin, obvious sin. 
So we saw last week it was common knowledge. They were not addressing sin in the church, and here they're not addressing disputes between believers in the church. Where there is a dispute between two believers, as we saw last week, there is a biblical process to follow. And the last step is to tell it to the church, Matthew 18, 17, not to the civil courts. So you have to go, just like we saw, we looked at last week, Matthew 18, if you have a grievance against your brother, you go address that with your brother. If they listen, fine, you've resolved the issue. If not, you bring a few witnesses and you bring, you know, you bring the matter to their attention again. And if he or she listens, fine, you have, you have settled the dispute. If not, then you bring it to the church. So here they weren't even bringing it to the church. They had this dispute between believers within the church and they were not bringing it to the church. They were instead going outside of the church to settle matters. And again, the reason is that the church is qualified by the Spirit. We are given the Holy Spirit in order to adjudicate such matters and disputes between believers. That's what Paul says moving on now to verses 2 and 3. Where he says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Verse 3, do you not know that we shall judge angels, how much more the things that pertain to this life. Now when Paul says, do you not know, what do you think he means? You, you should know this, right? <laughs> you know this. It's an obvious rhetorical question in which the answer is yes. You do know this. Do you not know? It's like when Jesus goes to the Pharisees and says, have you not read? Have you not read your own Bible? Meaning, you have read your Bible, you're not understanding it right, or you're just ignoring the parts you don't like. Now here, Paul uses an example, he uses in these two verses, an example of argument from the greater to the lesser. From the greater to the lesser. An example of that would be, if you can lift 200 pounds above your head, you can certainly pick up this mug, Right? If I can lift 200 pounds above my head without any effort, I can easily pick up this mug that's only filled with coffee, right? So that's the idea. If you could do these greater things, surely the lesser things you can do as well. And in these two arguments, Paul is reminding the Corinthian believers of their true rank, their true position. They are saints in whom dwells the Holy Spirit. So that right there and then and there, marks them as qualified to judge these matters because they have God's Holy Spirit living within them as we will see in the second half of chapter 6 as well. He makes it explicit. But they have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them so they are eminently qualified to adjudicate these small, trivial cases. And they are heirs with Christ and thus heirs of all things. So the first argument in verse 2 says where he says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the saints can, are going to judge the world, surely they can judge trivial matters between two believers in the church. If you're going to judge the world, surely you can judge whether or not two brothers are arguing over 20 bucks. Okay, I mean, it's kind of what it feels like. When Paul says here the saints will judge the world, he's not talking about judging the world in this age. He's referring... 
uh, in a way, to the judgment at Christ's return. Because when Christ returns, He's going to set up His eternal kingdom and we're going to rule with Him. If you remember from our study in Daniel, Daniel 7.22 says that the saints of the Most High, that's us, we're the saints of the Most High, will possess the kingdom and reign with the Son of Man. So this is the kingdom of the Son of Man and the saints will possess the kingdom and reign with Him. In Matthew 19.28, Jesus says to His disciples that they will sit on twelve thrones and they will judge the twelve tribes of Israel. Third passage, if you want a third one, Revelation 20, verse 4. You've got to say that right. If you say 24, it sounds like you're saying Revelation chapter 24. And then you're guilty of adding three chapters to the end of the Bible. And then the Bible says don't do that. So Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. We are told that those who are in Christ will have judgment committed to them. And they will reign with Christ for 1,000 years. So the the Christians, the saints, will judge the world. Surely we can judge a trivial case between believers without involving the unbelieving world. Now Paul then goes on in his second argument to say we will judge angels. And again, if we can judge the fallen angels, surely we can judge the matters of this life. It's sort of like if you're going to judge matters in the life to come, Surely you can judge matters in this life. And with that in mind, Paul then really hammers the Corinthians for taking trivial matters in the church to be judged by unbelievers in verses 4 through 6. So after making those two arguments in verse 4, he says, If then you have judgments concerning the things pertaining to this life, Do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. So the Corinthian believers were taking these small matters and they were dragging them dragging their fellow brothers to civil law courts. They were dragging them before those, as as the passage here says, who are least esteemed by the church to judge. Uh, The ESV, I think, captures maybe this idea a little better when it says, you're bringing your cases before those who have no standing in the church. Who have no standing, no authority in the church. When Paul says that, the thought of that should be, that's unthinkable. You don't bring a church matter to those who have no standing in the church. If there is a dispute between believers here, we would not go to a civil law court to try to judge that. We would bring that through the courts of the church, so to speak. So when Paul says this, then he he kind of rebukes him even more and says, like, perhaps there's no one there among you who is even worthy of judging these matters. There's no one in Corinth with the wisdom to judge such matters. And he says, this is shameful. This is a shame to you. So rather than settle disputes among themselves, they were in a way dragging one another to court in front of unbelievers. And that's shameful. That is very shameful. Ought not to be done. 
So now we look at verses 7 through 8 as Paul looks at the true attitude of Christians. And he turns up the temperature a little bit where he says, Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? So when you go to court in a civil suit, you go to win, right? That's the whole idea. You don't drag someone to court expecting to lose. You want to win. You want to win your court case. You want to get the settlement or whatever. But Paul here is saying that the very fact that you have such church disputes is in itself a failure. It's like you've already failed. You want to try to win and, and, and win your grievance in court, but by doing so, you have already failed. You've already failed. You, you lose before the verdict is even rendered. And all of this, like the issue of the sexual immorality we saw last week, like the issue of the divisions within the church that we saw for the like, last couple of months, um, just talks about their arrogance, their immaturity, their childlessness, their fleshliness, their carnality, and it all amounts to a big, fat zero, a failure. What they were doing was acting like the world. That's what the, this is what the world does, right? You know, I mean, we, we talk about our society being overly litigious, right? You know, we like to sue anybody and everybody at the drop of a hat. You know, we were kind of making the joke before we started about the number of lawyers. It's like, the, you know, you always hear the statistic that there are more law students in law school than there are lawyers actually serving. We are a highly litigious society. We're, I mean, you know, we're trying to sell my dad's condo, and every time the lawyer sends us paperwork, he sends us like a 10-page document, and then in the email that he sends it to me, he gives me like a two-sentence summary. It's like, why do I need the 10 pages for? Can't that be reduced to the two sentences? Can't that be legally binding? No, no, no. Because you have to say it in such a way, but this basically, you know. So we, we are a very highly litigious society. And what the Corinthians were doing, were act, they were just acting like the, the world. They were following the ways of the world and not following Christ. And just like it did with the divisions in the church, uh, in which the members were taking one another to court here. A church in which the members are taking one another to court puts forward an awful witness to the world. Again, this disrupts and destroys the Christians and the church's witness to the world. If the world comes in and sees Christians bickering with one another, and if they see them taking one another to law courts, again, what kind of witness is that put forward for the church? You know, it's not going to be an appealing one, I can tell you that. I mean, would you go to a church in which the members were being factious and, and disruptive with one another? No, you can get that any old place. You don't need to come to the church for that. Additionally, would you go to a church in which members were suing one another in civil court? No, for that I'll just watch Judge Judy or the People's Court. Right? I don't need to go to church for that. You can see that every day at 4 o'clock on my TV station. Christians are to reflect the nature of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what the word Christian means. It means to be like little Christs. Not that we follow him perfectly, not that we have to be perfect to follow him, but he sets an example for us. 
He sets an example for us, and we are, we are to reflect that nature, not the nature of the world. That's what the Corinthians are doing. They were reflecting the world around them and not Christ. Now, again, if anyone, if anyone in this whole world, in the whole history of the world, could rightly seek his own rights, who would that be? Jesus, right? Jesus would be the only one who can actually say he was truly wronged by the world. Right, that he is truly owed a debt. But the Corinthians' attitude reflects the pride and arrogance that we've seen all throughout the letter so far. And Paul says, instead of bickering over these small things, these trivial things, why not rather, as he says, why not rather accept wrong? Why not rather let yourselves be cheated? It's kind of reminiscent of uh, the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 18, 21 through 35 of the unforgiving servant, right? You know how that story goes. There's a, ma- there's a servant before his master, and his master is collecting debts. And the servant has an unpayable debt. He's got a debt of several hundred talents, which would take several you know, tens and you know, hundreds of lifetimes for him to pay based on the, the actual daily wage of a servant. So the servant has, now, who knows how he racked that debt up. That's not the point. The point is he's got this debt, the master's collecting debts, and the servant falls on his face and begs his master to forgive him. And out of pity and compassion, the master forgives him this huge debt. And then what does the servant go and do? He goes and finds a friend who owes, it's not an insignificant amount of money, but it is an amount of money that can actually be paid if he would just let the guy do his job. But no, he beats him, he has him arrested, and sent to court to pay the debt, which is how is he going to do that when he's in jail? He can't pay the debt when he's in jail. But anyway, he does that. And then the, 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 the close servants of the master see that, and then they tell the master, and then the master says, bring that wicked servant back to me, and he will pay me everything he owes me. So the idea here is that the attitude betrays a mind that has forgotten how morally and materially bankrupt we are before God. We are morally and materially bankrupt before God. And God forgives us all of that. We have an unpayable debt of sin that we cannot pay in this lifetime, cannot pay ever. right? If we were, if, if we were left to pay our sin debt before God, where would we be? We'd be in the hot place, and we'd be there for a long time. In fact, we would be there forever, right? So we cannot pay this debt. God forgives us this debt. So then when you demand your pound of flesh from a fellow Christian, you are not reflecting your master, Jesus Christ. In fact, when Paul says, why not rather accept wrong, it also reminds me of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 39 and following, where he says, I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you in your right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. If I had to boil that down in a sentence, don't sweat the small stuff. Don't sweat the small stuff. It's not worth it. Now, Jesus' words here aren't meant to turn us into doormats, right, or, and let people take advantage of us, but... Rather, they're meant to drive us not to get worked up over small issues 
over small trivial cases. Problem was, though, rather than not sweating the small stuff, the Corinthians were actually taking advantage of fellow believers. Look at verse 8. No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. And you do these things to your brethren. Rather than suffer unrighteousness, the Corinthians were acting unrighteously. can almost see how far this community of believers had fallen in the church. As we saw last week, this church had fallen into sort of a cheap grace mentality. It was okay, you know, in other words, it was okay to wrong and cheat your fellow believers because as long as you believe in Jesus Christ, you've got the, you've got the fire insurance, right? You've got the get out of hell free card. So it doesn't matter what we do, we're forgiven. It's the mindset that Paul addresses in Romans when he says at the end of chapter 5, as sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And then he has to address what would have been a normal question that he would have received. Then shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? As I mentioned back then, it's like it's like it's like a perfect marriage. It's a match made in heaven, right? I like to sin. God likes to show grace. That's perfect, right? We, we're made for one another, <laughs> I'll just keep on sinning. My sinning will allow God to pour out His grace. God gets the glory. I get to do what I want. It's almost kind of like the mindset you're kind of seeing here in Corinth. Cheap grace. It's no surprise that those of Chloe's household sent this report to Paul. Because the, the church in Corinth was, in a sense, seemed to be devolving into a relative free-for-all. People were just letting you know, wanton sin go unchecked. Other people were defrauding one another and taking one another to court. And we'll see, it gets even worse. <laughs> it gets even worse at the end of chapter 6. But even more shocking is that uh, Paul, if you recall, addressed the Corinthians as saints, right? At the very beginning of the letter, <laughs> he calls them saints. Where he says, to those, uh, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, who, uh, with all who in every place call in the name of, the, of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace and peace to you. So, I mean, he, he acknowledges that they're believers. They're just believers that have lost their way. And that's, that's, that can happen. Believers can lose their way, believe it or not. Yes. Christians can sin. Christians can sin badly. They can sin Grievously, they can do horrible things to one another. Well, moving on now. As we look at verses 9 through 11. So now Paul brings the hammer down in verses 9 through 10, where he says, again, do you not know? The third time he's used it here. Do you not know? that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. So again, using that do you not know, in other words, you, you know this. You know this. If not, you ought to know this. He says there, the fra that phrase where he says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God is a two-edged sword. 
First, it cuts against the Corinthian error of bringing internal church matters before unrighteous judges. Why bring matters between believers before those who will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. The righteous, Christians, will. Christians are to judge the world. They are to judge angels. The unrighteous will not. So why are you bringing these matters before the unrighteous? They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't bring your cases before them. But it also cuts against the Corinthians' behavior. What they were doing was unrighteous. What they were doing was calling into question their own salvation. Because if they were truly saved, you would not act this way. You are acting like the unrighteous. And do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. You cannot act like the world and expect to inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul here, as he's done in other passages in Scripture, like the fruit of the Spirit, the works of the flesh, and other places, lists a representative list of behaviors that would prevent anyone from inheriting the kingdom of God. Now, the list is not meant to be exhaustive. It's not meant to give you every single example of unrighteousness. It's, it's sort of just a sample of types of unrighteousness that Paul is coming to mind that says these things, if you are doing these things, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And I'm not going to take the time to define them all either. In fact, in many cases, they're fairly self-explanatory. Drunkards. Do you need me to explain that one? <laughs> no, right? Idolaters. <laughs> Right? You know, you're putting something before God in worship. Anything. It doesn't have to be an idol. It could be yourself. It could be your children. It could be your, your you know, other things. Your job. Things like that. Your, your football team. Hey, now. That's <laughs> no, you'd have to be foolish to be an idol, to, to have the Chicago Bears as an idol. That's, that would be like one of those gods that Isaiah talks about where he says they're gods that don't, they're dumb and they don't speak, they can't see, they can't hear. But um, thieves, right? That's, pretty, that's pretty, pretty self-explanatory. Covetous, those who desire other things, revilers, party people, extortioners, etc. So I'm not, you know, I said I'm not going to define them, I'm kind of defining them, right? But anyway, I'm not going to go into depth to define them. I will say this much, though. This passage is one of the clear New Testament passages, at least, that does speak against the sin of homosexuality, and it's often used in those cases. Um, and obviously, this is not politically correct, right? It's not woke of me to say that homosexuality is a sin. But you've got two words there. Depending on your translation, I think the ESV says, those who practice homosexuality. Is that what it says, Laurie? Those who practice... Yeah, so really there are two words there, and the two words refer to, how to put this delicately, the passive partner and the aggressive partner, okay, in, in a homosexual relationship. I'll let you, you can, you can figure that out for yourselves. But you've got the, you've got the, the one who wears the pants in the relationship and the one who doesn't wear the pants in the relationship, basically. The point is, this is a, you know, 
the reason I bring this up is because there, there are some churches, I hesitate to use the word churches, that go by the name Christian that will say it's okay to be homosexual. Now, there are some that will say it's okay to even act out on it, and then there are some that will say it's okay to be homosexual as long as you don't act out on it, but they still will identify themselves as homosexuals. Now, again, here, the passage is talking mostly about the activity. The activity is clearly sin. The urge is a sinful urge. There's, there's no two ways about it. Now, the point is not to hammer that, because having said that, we need to avoid the opposite error, because there are Christians who believe this too, that homosexuality is sort of like the unforgivable sin, and they forget all the other things that are sin as well. And every time I see a passage like this that has homosexuality in it as a list of sins, I need to look and around, and I can find at least two or three of which I'm guilty of. Right? Covetousness. How many people here covet things? I better see all hands go up. <laughs> okay. We all covet things from time to time. Right? Other passages. You know, those who are prone to fits of anger. Okay? That would be me as well. All right. So other things. So it's, these are all sins. Right? Homosexuality is not the unforgivable sin, but it is sin. That's the point. But again, you've got this list here. Adulterers, covetous, idolaters, you know, even if you're not actually committing the act of adultery, what does Jesus say about adultery? If you look at a woman with lust in your heart, and that could also apply to a woman looking at a man with lust in her heart, you have committed adultery in your heart. All of them will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now look at verse 11. Verse 11 begins, well, it doesn't begin with my favorite word, but it's in there. But, but, and he says, and such were some of you, right? Verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. When he's speaking to them, he's saying to the, Corinthian, the group of Corinthian church people there that you were this. Some of you were this. This list of things I have here, idolaters, revilers, adulterers, covetous, homosexuals, sodomites, and such were some of you in Corinth. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. And in the English as well as in the Greek, all those words are in the past tense. You were washed, you were sanctified you were justified and they're also in the passive voice meaning you didn't wash yourself you didn't sanctify yourself you didn't justify yourself you were washed you were sanctified you were justified just to give you an example of active and passive right you know active is johnny hit the ball passive is johnny was hit by the ball okay <laughs> So here, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. This is a great gospel verse. This is an awesome gospel verse in the truest sense of the word awesome. Because you used to be this. All of us used to be things like this. We used to be this way. But now you are washed. You are washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? You are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You are justified 
by the gospel, by faith in Christ. Not because we're better than everyone else. Remember, the Corinthian church here, it was, as we saw earlier in 1 Corinthians, he calls them, he says, you, you, know, you look at you guys. You are not the, the, the A-team. <laughs> You're not the first string. You know, not many of you are wise. Not many of you are noble. Not many of you are mighty. But you are in Christ, right? So they are not the A-team. They're not, they're not washed, sanctified, and justified because they're better than everyone else in Corinth but because they were washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, because they were justified by faith in Christ, and because they were sanctified by Holy, the Holy Spirit. And now Paul calls on them to act like it. You need to start acting like you are washed, like you are sanctified, like you are justified. And you do so not by acting like the unrighteous in the world and squabbling over trivial matters, as he says. So that brings us to the end of this passage here. Paul, again, this, this passage as he addresses another issue from the report of Chloe's household. He is, he is really trying to push these Corinthian believers to not only put into practice what they are positionally in Christ to try to get their walk to match their talk, but he's also telling them you need to have a, a good idea and a better church structure your church needs to be able to handle these things when they come up. Your church needs to be able to address sin when it happens. Your church needs to be able to address disputes between believers and members in the church. To not do these things is to not only not fail in your job as a church, but also to put forth a very horrible and weak witness before the world. So next time, Lord willing, next week, the 13th, we will finish chapter 6. And not only will we finish chapter 6, but we're going to finish the report from Chloe's household. So then starting whenever I get back from vacation and get ready to teach a Sunday school lesson again, when we start with chapter 7, we'll be starting now the second main part of the letter in which Paul addresses questions that the church had that they sent to him in a letter. As you can see, in verse 1, now concerning the things which you wrote to me. So now he's done kind of hammering them on the bad report card that they got from Chloe's house. So now he's going to start addressing some of their issues.